You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Luke chapter 22. Lord, as we come to your word, we just uh, so desire for just your very presence to be here speaking to us. Uh, Lord, we just pray that, uh, that the, the text here would be our authority, God. Uh, Lord, that you would show us truth, uh, give us understanding, help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that as we read your word and as we look into the mirror of the scriptures, uh, that we wouldn't walk away um, unchanged, but Lord, we would see ourselves how you see us, and we would let you conform us as you renew our mind. Just do a work here this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Chapter 22, let's just read uh, verses 1 through 6. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judah, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, somewhere between the Olivet Discourse, which we've just spent six weeks studying, and this section here around Passover uh, was an event that took place in Bethany around the north side of the Mount of Olives when Jesus uh, went to the house of Simon the leper and the house of Lazarus. Now, both of these men had been healed by Jesus, and Jesus was now sitting at their table. Uh, While he's sitting there, a woman comes up, and she has this flask uh, full of oil of spikenard. It was a very uh, precious, very expensive oil perfume that was worth about a year's wages, And for this woman, it was her dowry. And so we see as Jesus is sitting there, the disciples are in the house. This woman comes and breaks this very costly vase of oil open upon Jesus's feet and begins washing his feet with her hair. And it's there that we see that our worship of Jesus should be costly. It should be costly. It should be something that challenges us to give all that we are to him. Now that might be possessions like a a vase of perfume. That might be our time. That might be our finances. Uh, That could probably even be our worship towards him. You know, in this day and age, I think it's been this way all throughout church history. You know, we're awfully concerned about how we feel when we come to worship. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. You know, we live in a day and age where it's not cool to sing around somebody, you know, or, or, you know, to lift our hands in front of somebody or to get on our knees uh, with people around and watching us. But we see that our worship is costly. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 tell us, you know, some awesome principles about our giving that we should give according to our ability and beyond our ability. We should be freely willing. Chapter 9 tells us that, you know, we shouldn't give out of, you know, grudgingly and out of obligation or necessity, but our giving should be with a joyful heart for the the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And so as we come into this place to worship the Lord, man, 
it might cost us something. It might cost us our pride. It might cost us getting out of our comfort zone. It might cost us, you know, losing the macho man attitude and being a little bit vulnerable before the Lord and before others. But our worship, it's costly. You know, worship is not about you. You know, it's not about how you feel or what you think you look like. Worship is about Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he is worthy of our praise. And so may the Lord take us beyond this place of it's all about me and how I feel today and what the people are doing around me. And may he take us into the holy of holies where it's just us and him, where we can love on him and pour out ourselves as an offering to him, a sweet smelling aroma. Now, the reason I started telling this story is because, yeah, it is sandwiched in there. Matthew chapter 26, it's the next thing that happens in Matthew's account. But in John's account, we get a little bit of a background on Judas Iscariot. You know, here in Luke, we're seeing that Judas Iscariot is a crafty little guy. He's going to end up betraying Jesus. And John's account of the, the alabaster flask being broken in worship tells us uh, something about Judas's heart. So look in John chapter 12. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 22. We are going to be going through the book. <clears throat> but in John's account, you know, in verse 3, Mary took a pound of this very costly oil, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Man, did you notice that today as we were all worshiping the Lord? Lord, you are beautiful, awesome, and wonderful. I give you all of my life, you know? And everyone's just, oh, man, it's just me and Jesus right now. And I noticed that this house was filled with the fragrance of worship, just like it was back then. Verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. You know, Matthew tells us that the disciples were indignant that this woman would break the perfume, but I think that it was uh, Judas leading the disciples in this murmuring and complaining. It was really he that had the issue because he was a thief. He didn't care about the poor, but he was a thief who always had his hand in the coffer. Verse seven, Jesus said, leave her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. And so it was then even uh, that the Jews sought to kill Jesus more and they sought to kill Lazarus uh, because many people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus's testimony. So it was Judas who started complaining here about this costly oil. He was kind of known as the treasurer of the group, the one who kept the money box, always stealing from the club, you know, always stealing from the disciples. You know, and later on, we're going to see here in Luke 22 that he's a sellout. He's a sellout. He would sell, sell the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. And so we see a little bit about Judas's heart there. Now, uh, it says here back in Luke chapter 22 that it was Passover 
The Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, often those were intertwined. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So for quite some time, the, the religious leaders had been plotting how they could kill Jesus. You know, the verdict was in with them, and to them, Jesus was going to die. They were so sick and tired of hearing his little sermons and hearing him declare himself to be the son of God. And they just watched him preach this impressive uh, sermon in the temple. And they were, they were indignant. They were angry. They wanted this man dead. But now it's Passover is approaching and, you know, the people are coming into the city that love Jesus. And so, well, we can't kill him now. There would be a riot. There would be an uproar among the people. Jesus did have many followers, most of them peasants, you know, waiting for Jesus to kick out the Roman government and set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem. Now, it was Passover week, uh, and Passover reminded all of the Jews of their deliverance from the tyranny and oppression of Egypt. You know, national fervor ran high and civil disobedience, uh, you know, was very real as people were recalling, hey, the Lord took us out of Egypt when we were oppressed by Egypt and now we're oppressed by Rome. Why can't he deliver us now? Oh, he can. Yeah, you're right. He can. And people would start, you know, frothing at the mouth and getting beady little eyes and be like, let's go kill the Romans, you know, and, and they would have these little uproars. And so the Roman soldiers, you know, were added to the town to try and keep the peace. And these religious leaders knew, well, if we tried to take Jesus, this guy who's, you know, a lot of people think he's going to kick out the Romans, uh, you know, we're going to cause a riot. And so we need to do this business during the night hours, you know, not in public or during the feast. Because if we cause a riot, then we're going to get arrested for, you know, causing this stir. So they had to think of a sly way uh, to get rid of Jesus, you know, uh, you know, you could picture these religious leaders kind of in a huddle trying to think of a plan, you know, how can we get rid of him? I don't know, but I'm sick of him and I sure hope he goes soon, you know, and let's, let's kill him. Yeah, but how it's Passover week. And you can picture one guy going, Hey, I got an idea. Hey, what if we get one of the 12 to, to betray him and to, you know, we could give him some money or something and he could betray Jesus to us. Yeah, right, you idiot, get out of here, you know, don't you know those guys love him? You know, get out of my sight. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. You know, who's there? Oh, it's Judas Iscariot. He's one of the followers of Jesus. And Judas walks in and very point blankly says, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? And they say, you know, one of the gospels says it was 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus, or Judas said, deal. You know, he didn't, you know, although he was a crafty businessman, he didn't counter offer 35 pieces of silver, you know, like, no deal. There was something in Judas's heart that had hardened to a point that he wasn't, you know, he was just ready to get rid of Jesus and he just wanted some money. So, you know, very quickly the price was set. Now notice there in verse three, Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas. You know, the devil had a huge active part in what was taking place uh, throughout this whole Passion Week. You know, uh, we're going to read in a little bit about the Last Supper, but we see that when the supper ended, the devil had put into the heart of Judas Iscariot uh, to betray him, and he ends up getting up from the table to go betray. Getting up from the Last Supper. You guys remember Luke chapter 4 when Jesus... 
Jesus was driven or Jesus was driven into the wilderness and the devil tempted him three different times. And each time, you know, Jesus wielded the sword of the word of God and, and countered these temptations. And it says the devil went away looking for a more opportune time. And then we never hear about the devil really tempting Jesus until we come to this passion week uh, where the devil is really trying to tempt Jesus. Tempt Jesus to what? Tempt Jesus to not go to the cross. And we're going to see next week in the Garden of Gethsemane a huge spiritual battle taking place where Jesus could have said, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to die. That looks painful. You know, I'm good just hanging out in Galilee for the rest of my life, you know, eating coconuts and fish, you know, or whatever. I don't think there's coconuts. Oh, there might be. I've been there, but I don't remember coconuts. Um, you know, uh, you know, let's do that. There was a huge spiritual battle there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it appears that this more opportune time for the devil has come. You know, something we know about Judas is that Judas had never believed. He never had believed Jesus. And Jesus knew that. John chapter 6, verse 64 and 70. You know, he says, you know, there's some among us that don't believe. Uh, you know, and, and so Judas at this point had surrendered to the power of Satan and had allowed himself to come completely under the authority of the dark one. And man, what a, what a thought that is, that the battle that's raging around us is not somewhere out there, but it's right among us. You know, that the, the enemy doesn't like what's happening at Calvary Chapel. You know, I'm not saying the devil himself is here, you know, but his little cronies are walking about like roaring lions seeking whom they may devour. And they want to trip us up and tempt us in our walk with the Lord. And so Judas surrenders to the possession of the devil. We know in scripture, Christians can't be demon possessed. And all evidence points that Judas Iscariot was not a Christian as he's possessed here at this point. And so we see that Judas went out promising that he would betray him. And he looks for this convenient way to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. You know, I was looking up, well, how much is that? It kind of depends on what type of silver it was and how pure it was, but it was anywhere from about $119 to $190 American today, uh, which was a lot more back then. But, you know, you ask, how much would you sell your soul for? Uh, pretty much 30 pieces of silver was what it was here on Judas. And so we're going to look more on Judas's life a little bit later when he's uh, confronted at the, there at the dinner table. But um, let's look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into the house, which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room that we may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he'd said to them, 
and they prepared the Passover. So the Passover lamb is, is going to be prepared. And if you look at it, you know, Jesus will end up being killed at the same moment the Passover lambs would be, be begin being killed. Um, and and uh, so it was, it's a perfect picture of who Jesus is. But it says here that, you know, as, as the lambs were being ready to be killed, Jesus himself was being prepared to die once for the sins of many. And so we see that the disciples went out just like Jesus said, and they looked for this man carrying a water pitcher. Now, this was an easy sign to see because back then men didn't carry water pitchers around. You know, the women would do that. They would go get the water. They would, uh, you know, heft those heavy totes around, you know, up on their heads and whatnot. And so they would look around. You might as well have had a red bandana tied around your head. You know, they saw him. Oh, bingo. That's our guy. They went and it was all prepared, you know, just like the Lord said, he had gone ahead and found the room. Now, some say that this upper room was Mark's house or John Mark's house. Uh, You know, in Acts chapter 12, there's uh, a reference to John Mark's house that was a common place of meeting back in the day. And um, we actually even see a young John Mark in Mark's gospel running away from the Garden of Gethsemane naked, uh, having followed them over from this room. So it was an upper room. You can go to the location of this room today. It's a special place to spend worshiping. It's, it's a cool place to go. It's not the actual upper room, but it's the area. It's the, the spot. And, uh, and so it was all prepared, uh, just like Jesus said in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is kind of cool that Jesus was just really looking forward to this Passover meal with the boys. He had a fervent desire. Now, fervency speaks of heating something up, uh, heating a solid up to the point of boiling it as a liquid. And as a welder, you know, I'm always going back to that, you know, when, when you would cut the metal and it would begin to get red and then that red would begin to become liquid and that liquid would boil and pop and sizzle, you know. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of desire the Lord had to eat this meal with these disciples. Now, why would Jesus really care all that much? I mean, we all look forward to Thanksgiving, am I right? You know, some of us are fervent about our Thanksgiving meal and, and you know, getting our grub on. But... um Why was Jesus so excited about this? Because it all points to him. For thousands of years, people had been eating the Passover, looking forward towards Jesus, and here he is eating it, saying, it's me. It all points to me. You know, Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. And you guys know the story in Exodus where the Lord told uh, uh, Moses to kill a lamb and take its blood and wipe it on the doorposts of the house. And when the angel of, of death comes over, you know, whoever has the blood on their doorpost will be spared. It's a picture of us. If we're covered by the blood of the lamb, our sins are looked over. Our sins are forgiven and taken away actually, but wrath passes over us because of the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus. And so that's one reason, but Jesus also knew that the meal would richly symbolize the giving of his body and blood for the disciples' salvation. And he's going to look at them in the eyes and he's going to say, this is my body being broken for you. You know, this is my blood. It's the symbol of the new covenant. 
And he goes on to say that he's not going to eat of this supper again. Uh, well, let's go ahead and read it in verse 16. I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is a representation of my body that is broken for you. And he says, why, you know, why should we do this? Why should we eat this meal communion? Why should we receive the elements? Because we want to remember what Jesus did to us. It's kind of cool as you look at the Passover dinner, they would take three pieces of unleavened bread and stack them, you know, and the middle piece of those unleavened bread was called the afikomen. Some of you maybe have heard of that before. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus as three pieces of bread. The middle one, the middle person of the Trinity uh, is taken out from among them. Now, something cool about this bread is it was striped and it was pierced, and it was unleavened. Something we know about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, he was striped for us. What do you mean he was striped for us, you know? He he was whipped for us, and by his stripes, we are healed. We know he was pierced on the cross for us, you know? We know that he was unleavened or without sin, It's an awesome picture of Jesus. And as that middle piece of the afikomen called the dessert is what that means. And it actually literally means, behold, I have come. The dessert has come. (laughs) Start saying that during dessert time. Afikomen time, you know. (laughs) You know, Jesus, the dessert comes and he's striped and he's pierced and he's sinless. And and the, the kind of the leader of the dinner would take that afikomen and he would break it in half and he would take the largest part of the broken piece and wrap it in a white cloth or white linen. And then he would hide it somewhere in the house. And then the little kids would go running around looking for the afikomen, kind of like an Easter egg hunt, you know, except there's one egg, you know, you know, trying to, trying to get that. And the child that found it would get a prize. Are you guys seeing the picture of Jesus here? The second person of the Trinity, sinless, was whipped and pierced and broken for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, you can read all about it. And he was wrapped in fine linen and buried. And whoever finds him, he's resurrected. Whoever finds him will have a blessing the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of salvation. Good news, you can find him here today. You know, good news, you can grab hold of him today as he was pierced and afflicted and wounded for your transgressions. So the bread, it's a symbol, it's a representation of his body, which was broken for us. And we need to remember him when we eat of it. The cup represents the new covenant of redemption, okay? It represents the new covenant of redemption 
that comes through the shedding of his blood, that came through the shedding of his blood. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. where we read about this new covenant. It's also mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. You might underline every time you see that word better. It's the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Okay. For if the first covenant had been faultless, that's the covenant with Moses, 10 commandments, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Excuse me. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful uh, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more in that. He says a new covenant. He's made the first obsolete Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The first covenant was made with Moses and the people there on Mount Sinai, and it was written on tablets of stone. Romans chapter eight tells us that that law, that covenant was weak in the flesh because we couldn't keep it. Even the best man of us couldn't keep up, keep it. You know, our most righteous act was like a filthy, smelly, smoldering rag before God's righteous standards. And so he says, I'll make a new covenant based on my righteousness. And the law is not going to be written on tablets of stone. It's going to be written on the tablet of your heart, a tablet of flesh, the tablet of your mind. You will own my righteous standards because if you come to me, you're going to love me. And if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments naturally. You're going to have a natural fruit of obedience through your love relationship with me. And so this blood is a symbol of this new covenant. It's a representation of our sins being forgiven, not because of our righteous deeds, but because of the precious blood of Jesus. And there in Luke, he says, you know, this is this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You might underline that word you, and you might write your name in there. The blood was shed for you. Even if you were the only person that needed it, the Lord would have come and shed his blood for you. Because without it, you would have been up a creek without a paddle. You're a sinner, and you have no righteousness before the Lord. No, not one righteous act. 
but he's rich in mercy. And while we were still sinners, he came and died for us that we could be forgiven. The blood was shed for you today. Matthew tells us that this blood is shed for many for the remission of sin, for the removal of sin. His blood paid the ransom price that was needed to deliver us from bondage. It was his blood that ransomed us. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse 26. It says, and we're going to look at a little more of 1 Corinthians 11, so it'd be good if you turn there. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So the eating of the bread, the drinking of the cup, what is the purpose of it? It's to remember Jesus and it's to proclaim his death. It's to proclaim that his act on the cross was sufficient to forgive us of our sins. Now, there's ways that we can err when coming to the table, when coming to the communion table. Okay, and we see this a little in 1 Corinthians, we see this in Hebrews. Um, Number one, we err when we come to the table for some sort of snack time in the middle of church. You know, it's kind of humorous, really, but not, (laughs) you know. To to many, communion is just something during a service or a religious time that helps things go a little faster. Oh, we we can get up now. We can stretch our legs a little. We can walk up, you know. Oh, cool, cute little cup, you know. Smell it a little bit, you know. Take Take the bread and, oh, it's snack time. Now, when I was a little kid, I was raised in at Bible Baptist Church in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And, you know, they had a policy that you couldn't take communion until you'd been baptized in the church, which... You know, really, that's not so biblical. It should be more, you can't receive communion until you are in Christ, you know. And then baptism is something that just naturally will follow later. But nonetheless, you know, every Sunday I would sit there and that communion tray would pass by me. I'm seven years old. You know, I'm bored out of my mind. I don't know what I'm doing here, you know. But that tray would go by with those beautiful little tiny glasses, you know, and smelly bread, you know, and pass by and, you know, you'd start putting your hand out for some and whack, you know, (laughs) well, what do I have to do? Well, you know, you know, my mom explained it rightly, you know, you need to come to Jesus and, uh, and you know, if you want to take it here in this church, you know, they ask that you be baptized. Let's do this thing. You know, why miss another snack in the middle of church? And so I was baptized and, you know, the next Sunday, you know, the, ah, delicious. Oh, this is such a nice little pit stop in the middle of the Bible, you know, or in the middle of the service. And, oh, oh, there's a little grain of salt on this piece of bread, you know, and you just, oh, that's, that's great. That's what it was for me. You know, in my immaturity as a little boy, you know, that's pretty much what communion was. I had no clue what it was biblically. And sadly for many adults today, uh, that's what communion is to them. It's just a religious experience. It's a time to stretch your legs. It's a time to, you know, I don't know what's up with this juice in this cracker, but I'm not going to lie to you. It's kind of nice right now, you know? And so, you know, you eat it and you savor it, right? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 11 and look at verse 20. You know, it says, therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? Or it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. 
What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You know, these guys were coming and taking the Lord's Supper, but they weren't taking it. They were coming because it was snack time. Back then, you know, they used a big old loaf of bread and a big old goblet, you know, of wine. And it was like, woo, you know, I'm drunk. I might as well have a little more, you know, or I'm hungry. Might as well eat a little, you know, unleavened bread here. And, you know, Paul says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to clap my hands to you for that. You know, that's ridiculous. If you want to eat, you know, have your snack at home, eat a good breakfast before you come to church, you know, get the roast in the oven for lunch afterwards. But, you know, uh, don't come and, and just use this as a time to, you know, wet your whistle and uh, help your stomach. I, frankly, a little cracker makes me a little more hungry. So it's not why I do it anymore. So we need to, you know, is, is that our heart? You know, maybe it is. Maybe it is. And we need to grow in maturity and understanding what communion really is. Number two, a way that we can err while coming to the table is that we don't examine ourselves before communion. Look at verse 27 there in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Verse 33, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment and the rest I will set in order when I come. So before we come to the table or while we're holding the elements in our hands, we need to ask the Lord to do a heart search, to, to put the radar on our heart. You know, we, we need to examine ourselves in two different ways. Number one, we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're of the faith. Hebrews tells us that daily we need to examine you know, ourselves and each other and sharpen one another and see if we're of the faith. Now, that doesn't mean worry if you've lost your salvation. It means make sure that there are evident fruits of salvation in your life. You know, and be looking at your life. Does my life line up with the pattern of godliness in scripture or does it line up with that of an ungodly person? And so we need to examine ourselves to see if we're really Christians. If you come to the table and you're not a believer in Jesus, then you're taking, you know, you're taking the symbol of the body and blood and you're just trampling it underfoot and you'll be guilty of the, the body and the blood of Jesus. The second thing we need to examine ourselves in is examine if there's any unrepentant sin in our life. Are there things that we are practicing that Paul clearly says, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. First John tells us that he who's saved cannot continue to sin. We're going to love Jesus so much. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means that we Sin, oh, oh my gosh, what am I doing? That grieves me, that grieves the Lord, that quenches the Holy Spirit. I cannot continue in this, and I've got to get rid of it. David said, you know, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my worries, and see if there be any wicked way in me. When we come to the table, and we're remembering the deep price that the Son of God paid for us on the cross, we don't come flippantly or hastily. 
but we examine ourselves and understand, Lord, you made such a deep price. Is there something in my life that grieves you? Is there something in my life that I'm practicing? Because I don't want to practice it anymore. I want to get rid of it. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that if a person willfully sins after coming to, to, the, to, the, um, to Jesus, willfully, unrepentant, practicing sin, they're trampling the blood of Jesus underfoot. They're guilty of the blood and body of Jesus. I don't want that to be me. And so I use communion as a time to just get real before the Lord and humble before the Lord and repent of things and say, Lord, I see things as you see them and I want to get rid of that. And I'm so thankful for your body that was broken for me and your blood which was shed for me. And Lord, I leave this place a changed man because of your grace. That's what communion is. And so there are heirs of those magnitudes within the church today. It's within Calvary Chapel. It's within this group of people right here. It's within this guy sometimes. And we need to examine ourselves and see, are we coming to the table rightly? You know, this goes for every church. We need to examine ourselves. A third way that we err in communion is we misunderstand what communion is. And the reason I point to you and I point to me is because we're not going to cast any stones here. We want to look at something in love and we want to understand rightly what communion is, okay? And the reason I set that up is that we want to have a heart of love here, okay? And I want to look just for a second at the Roman Catholic Mass. And I know that there's some here that have been raised in Catholicism and, and man, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. And man, you know, I love you. But I just want to examine something of tradition and I want to examine the word and then we'll go from there, you know, in, in doing what the Lord would have us do. Okay. So the Catholic mass, the world book encyclopedia says this mass is the celebration of communion in the Roman Catholic church. And we would all say, all right, according to Catholic teaching, each mass is a true sacrifice in which the risen Christ becomes bodily present on the altar as a victim who is offered anew by the church of God the Father as atonement for the sins of men, okay? So that's what the world book says, and frankly, what do we care? It's just an encyclopedia, okay? Let's look at the catechism of the Catholic Church. It says here concerning Mass, the victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory or able to atone. It is also Catholic belief that in objective reality, not merely symbolically, the wheaten bread and grape wine are converted into Christ's body and blood, a conversion referred to as transubstantiation, so that the whole Christ, body and blood, soul and divinity, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So if you know the scriptures, perhaps some red flags went up there. Now, I'm not trying to bash Catholicism. Man, I love Catholics, okay? 
if the same thing was happening here at Calvary Chapel, I'd say we need to re-examine some things here. You know, we need to look at the scriptures and walk in the truth. The thing about the mass, as I read it from the catechism, is that it denies the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished when he breathed his last breath. Let's look at some New Testament scriptures that point to Jesus being sacrificed one time for all. I'll just read them to you really fast since we don't have a ton of time. Romans 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life that he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 7.27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so just as we examine ourselves and the tendency to come and man, that cracker looks good or that juice looks good and a little snack time over in the corner by yourself or we come with sin in our lives and we don't repent of it before communion and we need to turn from those hearts and come with right hearts. So we need to examine all the traditions that we have and see where they line up with scripture. And we see that the Roman Catholic mass is missing the mark on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that's all I'm gonna say about that uh, uh, you know, as we come through the word, we, we can come to more of that later. But, um, so then the, the, the meal is shared, the communion is given and instituted. And in verse 21, we see Jesus predicting his betrayer. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at the table. You know, Jesus kind of goes from this exciting moment of, you know, this is my bloody, this is my blood, man. I've been really looking forward to sharing this meal with you too. My betrayers right here at this table. It's one of these 12. And you know, uh, Psalms prophesies of this in Psalm 41, nine, even my own familiar friend in whom I've trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You know, Jesus was being betrayed by a guy that he's traveled with, he's camped with, he's fished with, he's boated with, you know, and this man is betraying him. There's treachery involved here. In verse 22, it says, and truly the son of man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You know, Jesus is going to die. It's been prophesied in the scriptures. He doesn't need the help of this, this little betrayer. It's going to happen. But woe to that guy who's gonna, who is going to betray. You know, if it wasn't Judas, if Judas would have chosen obedience, another man, friend of Jesus, could have been raised up uh, just as well. You know, as we look at this, uh, you know, Jesus says, woe to that man to who betrayed Jesus. And we see that J- Judas didn't live long after this. You know, Acts chapter 1, we read about, you know, uh, Judas went immediately out, hung himself in a tree, And he burst out in this field, very gruesome. And the money that was found was ended up being used to buy this field. It was a potter's field, this field of blood. 
And so things didn't turn out too well with that 190 bucks. You know, he didn't go to Vegas. He didn't buy a car. You know, he blew up in a field and whoa, (laughs) whoa to this man. (laughs) So as we look at Judas though, some people get soft hearted and start defending Jesus. It's a combination between Jesus and Jesus. Jesus. Anyways, some people start defending Judas saying that, you know, he was, uh, you know, he forced Jesus into finally revealing his power and Judas helped set up the kingdom. You know, others say that he was a servant who was obedient and obediently fulfilled God's word. But scripturally, we look at Judas and we have to know that he was neither a martyr nor a robot. He was not a helpless victim of predestination. He was not a pawn on God's chessboard plan of, of his, of, of his plan. You know, he was a responsible business minded human being, reasonable man who made his choice to betray the son of God. And Jesus says it would have been better if he had never been born. We know that he's been possessed by Satan up into up at this point. But, uh, you know, this was not some sort of unwelcomed possession. You know, G- Judas is at the Last Supper. Bread and the blood and yes, it's such a great... You know, what is going on over there? I think he's demon possessed. You know, poor Judas, you know. No, he willingly... See somebody back there holding his forehead. He willingly opened up his life to the enemy to darkness. He welcomed this, this dark presence, the devil into his life. There is no hint in scriptures that he was unable to control his actions or that he was vomiting split pea soup. But the inference here is that he opened the door for Satan to come into his life. Genesis chapter four, verse seven tells us that if you do not do well, sin lies or crouches at the door waiting for you. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. It was possible for Judas to make a cognitive decision on his own to be obedient and to love Jesus. Jesus had to die, verse 22 tells us, but Judas did not have to betray. When it talks about Judas getting this plan in his heart, the Phillips translation says, then a diabolical plan came into the heart of Judas. What's the root word of diabolical? Diablo. Diablo. <laughs> no fair, you were in the first service. You know, it was a devilish plan that was put into the heart of Judas. And he willingly followed this little scheme and sly trickery that he had. Look at verse four. If you don't mind flipping back in verse six, let's look at some of the verbs that describe Judas here. Judas went to the chief priest. Judas discussed with them the price. He consented, verse six, with the price. And he watched for a moment of opportunity when he could hand Jesus over. He was acting under his own awareness. And you guys know what James tells us about how we sin. You know, it says in James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he was drawn away by his own desires and enticed. 
Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. So how could Judas possibly be the one? How, how could he do it? How could he betray Jesus? Well, how could Peter deny him? Believe it or not, they're two separate ways. Peter was afraid for his life. Judas wanted some cash. He wanted some money. You know, you can't say Judas without thinking about 30 pieces of silver. Even if you're not a Christian, you don't know anything about the Bible. Judas Iscariot, you're thinking 30 pieces of silver. How much will you give me, you know, is what he asks. Or, or you know, angry at the woman for breaking the flask of oil over Jesus' feet. That was 300 denarii right there. Ah, oh, man. You know, just a, a total jerk about uh, the issue there. And so the love of money in Judas became the root of all kinds of evil in his heart. And Paul told Timothy as a young man to watch out for those things and don't be sidetracked by all kinds of passions and money and sex. Because by those things, many leaders have fallen. You know, and Judas was a bright guy, you know, a businessman, one of the disciples. And he knew that things were coming to an end in Jesus's ministry. Jesus himself had said so. When we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be killed. Judas knew the ship was going down and Judas said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going down with the ship. Heck, I'll even make the ship go down faster if it means I get a little money out of the deal. And so I don't like the suggestion that Judas was trying to do Jesus a favor by creating a crisis that would force Jesus's hand. There's not a hint of that anywhere in the scripture. In fact, Jesus would constantly say, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus was the one that controlled when his time would finally come. And in Luke 22, we're going to see, yeah, his time did finally come. And so instead of treachery, Some say that Judas was just an erring saint with poor judgment. Well, you know, the Lord has grace on erring saints with poor judgment. Raise your hand if you're thankful for that, you know. But here's a man that was, uh, you know, involved in treason and betrayal and made a, a, a cognitive decision to betray the Son of God. And Jesus says, woe to that man. You know, it's in Judas that we see the spirit of the Antichrist embodied. When first John talks about, you know, these, these little antichrists that go out, he says, you know, they went out from among us, but they were not from us. If they were really of us, they would have stayed with us. And Judas was never really of them. You know, Jesus, Judas was probably thinking, man, I thought this being a disciple was going to be much more successful and profitable but now the whole business has just been a complete waste of my time and Jesus is going to die here in Jerusalem. And so now the question becomes not why, but when. When in Judas did his backsliding start? Was it an event? Was it a day? Was it a specific circumstance? You know, there was a time in Judas's life when he said, I want to be with Jesus. Jesus is walking around and he's grabbing fishermen out of the sea and he's grabbing tax collectors out of offices. And, you know, all these guys were getting together and kind of a fraternity brotherhood going on here. And yeah, I want to be a part of that. Jesus is a good speaker. He's doing some pretty awesome miracles. You know, I want to be with Jesus. And that can be us too. There's a time in us when we say, I want to be around Jesus. 
I want to go to church and be part of this love that's going on. I want to have an office in, on the board, you know. I want to be the treasurer, you know. Or I want to be involved in, in, you know, whatever work is going on around here. I want to do these things. Just like Judas, you know, we can say, I'm engaged in all the routines and go to all the services, but honestly, in my heart, you know, I neither know him nor love him. I'm just a religious person. I've got all the activities down. I've got all the outward appearances down. In fact, I'm with the 12 disciples right now, and Jesus is talking about a betrayer, and they're all wondering if it's them. Ha <laughs> ha! It's me, you suckers, you know? I'm the guy, but nobody knows it. You know, I wonder how many little Judases go to this church. Got the form of religion. You know, uh, <clears throat> Paul talks about men and women who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Just like Judas, there was a form of godliness there, but no power. It's a warning here to every uncommitted follower of Jesus. Are you committed to death? You know, are you committed with all of your life? Man, Judas had potential. He had awesome potential. You know, he loved hearing the sermons of Jesus at first, you know, he loved hearing that the axe was being laid to the roots. And little did he know if that axe was coming, it would knock him out under his feet. You know, he, he, he had great potential, but he had never been Christ's. He'd been there for the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and boat day on the lake. And man, this is awesome. But he never had been Christ's. You know, the story of Judas and his treachery is a chilling reminder to every member of the church who's among us who are living in close connection with Jesus that they are false and busily engaged in betraying him. And so, man, we all, I'm not thinking of one person in here except for myself. I need to examine myself. You know, am I just a whitewashed tomb? Outside, I'm all sparkly and white, but inside, I'm dead, full of decay and dead bones. We can't let appearances deceive us. We're going to have the worship team come forward, and I'm going to close with just a letter that uh, was found that was written to Jesus. It's not really. It's going to be a joke, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but it's from the Jordan Management Consultants. It says, Dear Sir... Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now been taken uh, or have now taken our battery of tests. And we've not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologists and vocational aptitude consultants. The profiles of all tests are included and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. This additional insight uh, is given as a result of our staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. 
Andrew is abs- has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. You know, we feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, the Jordan Management Consultants. And so, man, I'm glad that, you know, the Lord doesn't look at my outward appearance. Man, I want him to look at my heart. And, you know, he's looking at the hearts today. He's examining the hearts. And I don't want to be all cliche, but are you a Judas? Are you a Judas Iscariot here? Man, today, lay aside all the religious stuff and just come simply to Jesus and say, I want you. And I want your forgiveness and I want your lordship. I want you in and over my life. And as we come just during this last song, I just encourage you to come up to the table for communion. But before you do, you, you can get it and sit there with it. But before you partake, I just ask you to examine yourself and see if you're of the faith. If you're not, please don't take the cup and don't, don't drink it and don't eat or she'll heap judgment upon yourself. And if you're not a Christian, the great news is, is that you can become a Christian right where you're at. And you can bow your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you can submit to him and receive the forgiveness that comes through the shedding of his blood. But I encourage you to examine, are you a Christian today? Christian means a little Christ. Are you a little Christ today? I also encourage you to ask the Lord to examine your heart to see if there's any wickedness in you, any unrepentant sin. And just receive the grace covering you and receive the forgiveness. And so we're just during this last song, when you're ready, you can come up and take the cup and the bread and just go back to your seat. And just, just you and Jesus, you can get real with him and you can remember what he's done and you can proclaim his death over your life, that it paid for your sins. Let's go ahead and worship. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.